Good morning. It is so good to be gathered together here with you this morning to spend this time serving God, praising Him, offering this, this period of worship to Him. Uh, it is certainly enlifting, encouraging to me to be here with, with all of my brothers and sisters, but especially to be here with those who are visiting with us. We are so thankful for you all, your presence here. hope that you all know that you are very welcomed here and are, are considered our, our special guests. Uh, and if you haven't taken the opportunity already, uh, if you're, this is your first time visiting with us, please fill out a, a visitor card so we can have a record of your attendance uh, to remember that. We're going to be spending some time this morning looking at... Uh, this, this idea that I want to turn into a, a series of lessons that we will continue to visit uh, for, the next, the, for, the, for the next foreseeable future. And what I want to do is I want to spend some time reflecting on things that, that we oftentimes maybe just glance over, things that we don't give a lot of attention to. Uh, that idea of reflection is the idea of meditating upon something. Uh, in fact, when you consider the very definition of a reflection, is to consider a a subject matter, to consider an idea or a purpose, and then to take your thoughts, your ideas, and opinions and, and form a, a meditation of that, of that topic. And we have very much scriptural authority for that exact, uh, uh, that exact idea. Turn over to Philippians chapter 4 for just a moment. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. In this passage here, Paul, speaking to the Philippians, says, Brethren, whatever things are true... Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Your, other, your translations, I'm reading from the New King James, but other translations maybe say to think about these things or to dwell upon these things. And so I would like to begin this series of lessons by our, our first reflection on that which is what we have been made a part of and what we have cho chosen to join. In Acts chapter 2, we read of thousands of souls who are being baptized into Christ, being saved from their sins, and so begins the church of the New Testament. One of the things I want to consider is do we appreciate the importance of that? Do we appreciate the importance of the church and how it, uh, the, the, the relationship that it has with Christ. How important did he think the church to be? I believe that Paul understood this. That's why when we get to Acts chapter, 20, uh, or Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, Acts chapter 9 verse 26, let's turn over there and let's, let's read this together. Just the brief context of what's going on here. This is, this is Paul as he was still known as Saul of Tarsus at this time. And he has been uh, he has been breathing down the necks of the church. He has been full of hate. He was at the stoning of Stephen. He was on his way to Damascus to, to drag Christians off to prison. And along the way, he sees uh, the, the light. He sees Jesus uh, on, the, on the pathway to Damascus. He hears a voice that speaks to him, and he's blinded. He goes off uh, to, to where the voice tells him to go, and there Ananias comes to him. Ananias, being sent by God, goes and, and tells him what he must do to be saved. And then we see in, in chapter 9, earlier on in the chapter, that, that he is told to, that he must be baptized. And so this happens, and as we read in Acts, or as we know from Acts chapter 2, when, when he was baptized, he was added to their number. He is a part of the church. But what does it say in chapter 9 and verse 26? That when he leaves from where he was at and he comes to Jerusalem, 
He wants to join the disciples. See, he was trying to join the church that was there in Jerusalem, to be a part of that church, a part of the work, a part of the ministry that was going on there. Now, we also find out in this passage that they were, they were weary of that. They said, we know what you have done in the past. We, we remember how you were killing Christians, how you were, you were taking a part in, their, in this persecution. And yet it was Barnabas that takes him and says, look, we, we can trust this guy because, look, he has had a change of life. He is now standing in the, in, in the streets preaching uh, this Jesus and preaching him boldly to all those uh, uh, at, at, uh, at Damascus. And so with the, with the encouragement of Barnabas, with the proof that this man had changed his life, he is accepted in as a member of this church there at Jerusalem. He is a part of them. He joins them in their work. So we see Paul, he thought, it, he thought it pretty important. And pretty important to be a part of the Lord's body. But oftentimes today, that importance sometimes gets lost. So what I want to do is just, let's reflect for a little bit. Let's take a look at what God's Word says about the church. And the first thing I want to do is look at how the church is defined. <clears throat> um, the word that is used in the, in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It is a, uh, simply means a gathering of, of citizens out of uh, their homes to some public place or simply put uh, the, the word assembly. It is very synonymous with the word in Hebrew that is used in the Old Testament, kahal, which means the exact same thing, assembly. Uh, and, and it's used in, in many different lights. I want to show you a place, you know, this word ecclesia, it's where we get the word church. It's where the word church comes from, but it's not always translated church. Look over in Acts chapter 19 with me. Acts chapter 19, in verses 39 through, and, and, uh, through 41, just to, again, a quick context. Let's know what we're talking about here. In these passages, you have Paul, as, as he has, been, has made it his, uh, his plan to go around and to try and tell people about the truth of Jesus, about the, his gospel, and to help churches get established within the area of, of Asia. And he comes to Ephesus. And he's telling people that there is one God. And that God has sent His Son. And His Son has come so that you may have a, a true life. You may have eternal life. And, and as he preaches this message, people start to get mad. People like Demetrius, the silversmith, who make a living by casting silver idols of the, the, the gods of the area. Uh, particularly this god is the, the goddess Diana. He makes uh, copies and personal idols that you can take to your house. And so you can understand this is not a... This is not good for his business. As Paul is in the area and he's telling people there's only one God, Demetrius is saying, you know what, that's, that's costing me money. And so he stirs up all the people that have the same, uh, same occupation, all those other uh, silversmiths and, and maybe even the wood carvers and the goldsmiths and everyone that is affected by this. He stirs them up and they come together, they gather together. And we see in verse 34 that they were all of one voice crying out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is a riot that's going on that he has stirred up. And finally, finally, a, a voice of clarity comes out in verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there does not know what the city of Ephesians uh, is, the, is temple guardian of the great goddess of Diana and of the image which fell down before Zeus. So he kind of gets everybody calmed down. And then look what he says in verse 39. If you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. That's that word ecclesia that we have here, assembly. 
For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. When, we had these, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That's our, that word, ecclesia. Uh, whenever we read it, oftentimes it's translated church, but simply put, it means a gathering of people, a pe- an assembly of people with the same purpose, the same goal. These men were gathered together to complain and to riot about this message that John, or excuse me, Paul was teaching. And so that is the word that we have translated church. But it is used in three different ways in the Christian age when we consider it used for talking about that which we know today as the church. The first one is used in referring to the universal church. Or sometimes we might say the church universal. Look over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 22 through 23, says, He put all things under His feet. Now, that, let's, who are we talking about here? The He is God. God put all things under His feet, that being Jesus, and gave Him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now we can understand a little bit from this passage that Paul is speaking to the Ephesians. This is the Ephesian letter. He's written this letter to, to those uh, saints who are in Ephesus. And yet he is not telling them that Christ is the head over this church in Ephesus. All the rest of the churches have their own head. He's saying Christ is the head over all of the church. The church that meets in Ephesus. The church that was in Jerusalem. The church that was in Antioch. It didn't matter the location. Christ is the head of that church. And so we understand in this light that there is this idea of a universal church, a church that spans uh, singular locations, it spans place, and even spans time. Because here 2,000 years later, Christ is still the head over His church. That hasn't changed. And so the universal church is simply, uh, when, when we read about that word ecclesia used in that way, It's simply referring to all of those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. All those that belong to Him make up that universal church. That church that, even though they are separated by place and time, will one day be gathered together in eternity. So that's the first way that we see it used. The second way that we see it used is the idea of local churches. Turn over to to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see this is a commonplace for Paul as he addresses this letter to the members of a universal church. They are part of that that universal church. But he says in in chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. So it's interesting Paul speaks of the church in both forms here. He says, I am writing this letter to you, the church at Corinth. But you are like all of those who have been called and have answered that call to be saints. So we see the idea of of both forms of that word here. The local church being the church at Corinth made up of those who are a member of that universal church along with all who who have received the call to be saints. This isn't the only place we see this. As I said, this is commonplace in Paul's writings. If you look over at 1 Thessalonians, 
It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there again, he's talking about a local church, a church that, that's in Thessalonica. He does the same thing in the second epistle, writing again to the church of the Thessalonians. So he's talking about a church that meets at a, at a regular location. This is the, the church that exists in Thessalonica. And we even see that used in other passages like in Galatians, the churches of Galatia. There, there were several churches that met in Galatia, and he was writing to them, but he's writing to local churches or local assemblies of those who are the called-out assembly of God. A way we might just say that to be simple is he was calling to the assembly of the saints in that location, the assembly of the saints in Thessalonica, the assembly of the saints in Corinthians. These are the main two ways that you see the word ecclesia used throughout the New Testament. In the Christian age, as we put it, that is used to refer to all saints who, who have ever lived in all places and saints in a local place working together for the will of God. But there's one other way that is sometimes used, and that is to refer of the church meeting together. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul has been, has been addressing a problem. Almost so much of the Corinthian letter is addressing division. From the very beginning, they have been struggling with division, and he is addressing that, and, and, and questions that they have had, referring to which, which is right, which one do we do? And the, in the Corinthian letter towards the end, in verse 14, he's been talk, or in chapter 14, he's been talking about, about spiritual gifts. There's questions about spiritual gifts and their use, and he's already told them that these, these gifts are important, and here's, here's some things that you need to know about them, but you also need to know that these gifts aren't going to last forever. The, the greatest of these gifts is love. It's going to be the one that endures to the end. It speaks so much more than speaking in tongues and, and in healing, to, to have true love for the brethren and for the world and for God. But then we get to chapter 14, and he's given them some instruction on the way things are to go when they gather together to worship. And he says in chapter 14 in verse 19, Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in tongues. He also says in verse 28, But if there is no interpreter, let him, that is him who, keep, who speaks in tongues, let him keep silent in church. And let him speak to himself and to God. And then also in verse 35, speaking of women, he says, If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, what church is he talking about? Is he talking about just the Corinthian church? These things only apply to Corinth and to nowhere else? Well, no, certainly that is not the case. He is setting up an example for all churches to follow. But does that also mean that if you're a part of the universal church that you have to, to, to hold to these all the time? That sure would make it pretty hard for someone who, who does have the ability to maybe speak a bilingual. Maybe they can speak a, a, another language, but you know what? If there's no one else there to, that, that can interpret that, and I don't care if you're at Walmart. You better not ever use those words. Or what about what it says there in verse 35 about women? If they're a member of the church, uh, if they're to, not to speak in church, it's shameful for women to speak in church. If that's talking about that universal church, if that's talking about Christians from all places and all times, does that mean that, that if you're part of that, you just you can't speak if you're a woman? Well, that sure would be a, a pretty hard thing to follow. Some of the other commandments that he gives, some of the other things that are told over and over again to, to help other people to see the power of the gospel of salvation, we'd be, that'd make that very difficult. 
So we understand some things about this, knowing that it can't contradict other passages. It can't be saying uh, that, that anyone who's ever been a part of the church can't do these things, and that if you're a part of a local church, you must never, ever do these things. What it's saying is if you're in the meeting of the church, when the church gathers together, as we have done this morning, to worship God, to praise Him during those times, if these things are applicable, they should not be done. During the time of the first century when there was the gift of tongues, if you could speak in tongues but there was no one there to interpret it, you weren't just to get up and start speaking in tongues and no one understand what you're talking about. So we can see that there was three different ways that this was used, this word ecclesia. It was used to describe all the saints of through all time at all places. It was used to describe those saints when they met together in a local vicinity and it was used to describe the action of them coming together to worship God. Now for the purpose of, of the remainder of our time reflecting on this idea of the church, I really want to focus on this top one, the universal church, the, the, the sense of, of the full company of people throughout the world saved by Christ and consider the importance of it as we look at how it is described in the New Testament. And you think about something. Why, why do we have descriptions of things whenever holly calls me and says hey i need you to go to the store and pick this up unless it's something that i get asked to pick up a lot of times first my, my usual first question is where is that going to be found at what aisle do i need to go to what's around it is that over there with with the natural stuff or and you always say just go around the outside right that's that's where she wants me to go just don't go in the middle kyle you'll find all the junk food in the middle she says, go get this, and I say, where is it? What am I looking for? The same thing is true, and I would try to give someone directions to our house. You'd start with the most easiest description, my address. Here's my address. That's where I live. And when you get on our street, when you're coming down, we have the one that's, that's Bedford Stone. That's our house. And, you know, there's a couple of those. So ours is the one with the great big pin oak in the front yard. That's a pretty easy landmark to find. We understand that we describe things to help people understand what they look like or help people find it. So how is the church described? And we are looking for the church. We want to find out where we are going to, to be established and be a part of. We want to know how to be a part of that universal church. What's it look like? Well, let's look at the way the Bible describes that, that, uh, that, that church. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read this already. We read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. But I want to focus <clears throat> excuse me, just a little bit more on the, remain, the latter part of that passage. Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23, He put all things to, under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So the first one I do want to look at is this idea of the body of Christ. That's the first way that that is described, the church. It describes Christ as the head. And also in other places, like Ephesians chapter 5, you turn over maybe just a page or two, Ephesians 5 and verse 23 describes Him as the Savior of the body. It says, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. And so the first thing that we see is this metaphor depicting a relationship with Christ. Christ is the head. We, it doesn't take a lot of rocket scientists for us to figure out what a body separated from its head is. That's a corpse. That's something that is no longer living. 
And so the Christ is in relationship with his body. If a body is connected to the head, if it is holding on to the head, as we will read in a, in a, in a later scripture, then, then that body is one that is alive. It is one that is thriving. And so it, re, it represents a relationship that we have with Christ. If we are looking for the, the church, we need to look for that which is, is, is a body that is holding on to Christ as its head, as the, the thing that makes the decisions, that directs the body where to go. That's what Christ is to be uh, for, for that. But it also depicts a relationship between the body. Uh, if, if, we, if we are a part of the body of Christ, then we are going to be recognizing a few things about the relationship we have with one another. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 19, Colossians 2, 19, this is that passage that is talking about those who, who uh, do not hold fast to the head. They had let go of the head. But then it talks about what the head does. In Colossians 2.19, from whom the whole body, or from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. If the body is holding fast to the head, it is growing closer to one another. It is growing stronger. It is being built up. In fact, if we look over at another passage to, to kind of show this, let's look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and in verse 5, Paul says there, We being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So you say, you know what, I'm looking for that universal church. I'm looking to be a part of that universal church. And so I've, I've come and I'm gathered together with some people who claim to be part of that. Are they members one of another? Or do I see a lot of people that kind of look at each other and go, You know what, I, I'm part of the body of Christ, but I could just, I could just do without that part. It would be like me saying, you know what, I don't need my pinky. I'm just going to cut that pinky off and throw it away. It doesn't make any sense because that's not something the body does. The body cares for the whole. It wants the whole body to be built up. And as, Jesus, or as Paul put it over and over again, to do that, it holds fast to the head. And so that's the first way that we see it described uh, in, in the Bible is that it is the body of Christ. If you look over at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to see another way in which it is described. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 15, Paul, giving instruction to Timothy, says, If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul also says, in describing the church, that it is the house of God. <clears throat> in other words, when you think of the house, what is, what is it that, that, um, that dwells within the house? It is not the family. It's where you expect to find a family is within a house. And so when he speaks of the house of God, he is also uh, using language to help us remember that there, uh, the, so much of the church is described by the relationship between the church and God and the relationship between the church and itself. And this isn't new. This is not something that, oh, Paul just, he just cooked this up one day as he was, as he was walking from town to town. No, this is something that he learned from, from the, the accounts of Jesus. Maybe from what he learned during, the, uh, during his trip to, to Damascus as the light. Uh, you know, we, we don't really know everything that was involved in that, but certainly from being around other Christians, being around men like Peter, being around men who, who were, were able to, to speak as though they, had, they knew the, or had authority because they had been with Christ. They heard the teachings of Christ themselves. And look over at Matthew chapter 12. When you go over to Matthew chapter 12, we're going to find that Jesus oftentimes emphasized the family relationship that we would have with him. In verse 48, Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, 
Those, those people had come to him and they said, Hey, look, Jesus, we know you're in your teaching, but your, your mother and your brothers and, and your sisters, they're, they're, uh, your mother and your brothers, they're standing outside and they've got something they want to say to you. And what does he answer them? He says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He was talking, he could say that because that had been his purpose. Why did Jesus come but to do the will of the one who had sent him? To do the will of the Father. And so those who were following after him, who were doing the will of his Father, were joining themselves with him and they were family with him. He would also emphasize this over in Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. There, Peter began to say to him, Look what we've done, Jesus. See, we have left all and followed you. And look at Jesus' answer to them. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who should not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What was he saying to them? He was saying those who have left family, those who, who have left that family relationship and have left their possessions to come and follow the gospel are going to be, they're going to be recompensed that which they have left a hundredfold. Now, what does that mean? Uh, you know, to, to come over here and, and we, we moved to Nicholasville uh, and, and join in with the work going on here in Nicholasville, we left a farm. Not a farm that we owned, a farm that someone else owned, but, but nonetheless, we, we had the, the free run of that farm. So does that mean we, we can expect somewhere out there is a hundredfold that, that, that size of farm waiting on me? Is that, is that what I'm to be looking for? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, talking this, this you know, prosperity gospel that if you, if you give up this stuff for me, I'm just going gonna to blow it up in your life. You're just going to you know, open your bank account and watch those numbers climb. That's not what Jesus was saying here. He was saying for those who have, who've, have left their families, or those who have lost their possessions, this was common in this day. People were coming to follow after Christ, especially the, at this time, you're Jewish, and maybe your family, they, they were strict Pharisees. They would say, you're going to follow him, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You know, we still see that happening today. People who come to Christ and, and, and family members say, listen, if that's, if that's the choice you're going to make, if that's the walk that you're going to walk, that's, I'm not going to be a part of that. That's, that doesn't, I, I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't want to have anything to do with you. We know, I know per, people personally who have dealt with that. And Jesus is saying, even if you lose these things, you gain so much more. We don't have that farm anymore. That, we still have access to it, but we don't live on that farm anymore. But if our house burns down tomorrow, I'm not worried about where my boys are going to sleep. Because I know I've got, I've got families within the Church of Christ that say, you know what, our home is your home. You come over, we're going to make a place. I don't care if we have to sleep on the floor. We're going to have a place to sleep. Jesus was saying that within the, the house of God, those who are doing the will of the Father as He does the will of the Father, we are a family. So that means we take care of one another, but it also means we respect, once again, who is the head of that family. It is the house of God. He is the, the head of the family. He is the one that we look to uh, as, as the leader of that family. Another way that it is described, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 20. 
Here in the Ephesian letter, he describes it, and he uses that idea of the household of God again. But listen to what he says. Verse 19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, when we, to understand what he's talking about there, we do have to understand a little bit about the context of that from the Jewish side. From looking back to the Israelites, whenever they, first left, <clears throat> whenever they first left Egypt and they went off into the wilderness, they were instructed to build a tabernacle, to build a, a tent where God would dwell among His people. And they were to situate themselves around that tent so God dwelled in the middle of His people. And then as they, as they went on and they, they conquered the, 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 the Canaan land, the land of promise, and, and David come up to the, he said, you know what, we don't need a tent anymore. We're, we're established here. You need a permanent place. And God said, yeah, you're right, but you're not going to be the one to build it, David. Your son's going to build it. And so Solomon built the temple of God. And, and this is where God came and dwelled amongst his people. It was this habitation amongst his people. And here Paul is saying that the church is being built, is being fit together to grow into the holy temple of the Lord. That is to say, the church is the dwelling place of God in the Christian age. During the time of wandering, the dwelling place of God was the tabernacle. During the time of the Israelite kingdom, it was the temple. And during the time of the Christian age, it is the church. And this isn't the only place we see this idea. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 3, he gives some instruction regarding us as the temple. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Speaking to the church there at Corinth, speaking about the division that's going on there, about how they are divided. He says, Don't you know you're the temple of God? And if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul is placing a great emphasis on not defiling the temple. Or we might say, not defiling the church. And so this also puts an emphasis on what we are. If the church is the temple, then we are the priests of the temple. Peter would later say, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Speaking of the citizenship we have in Christ. But we are told to maintain the purity of the temple. What that meant for, the Old for those Israelites in the Old Testament, the Levites that were charged with the same thing, that they had to maintain their purity. They couldn't just go off and, and, and be caught out drinking and doing things which were unclean and, and, and being involved in all sorts of stuff that they had been commanded against. They were told very specifically, this is going to be your lot in life. And as a Levite, and as a priest of God's temple, you are going to be different even from the rest of your, of your fellow brethren. And so as the as the priests of the temple of God today, our call is very much the same. We are to stand out. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, you're going to be the light of the world or the salt of the world. We are to be the ones that stand out. But also in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul also went on to say in verses 16, he said that what, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This was a problem at Corinth. For you are the temple of the living God. And he says a little bit about what the relationship will be if God is the temple with his priests, with his people. 
I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, why is he about to say this? Because of these things that I've just said, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now this afternoon at the the 2.30 service, we're going to talk a little bit more about that idea of the fear of God because that's a really important part of us being able to do this not defiling the temple. As Paul says here, we perfect holiness. That doesn't mean that we are absolutely perfect and we're, we're never ever going to sin. Certainly we are still going to be human. We are still going to be tempted by Satan. He doesn't give up. And there are going to be times when we fall short of the glory of God. But because of the fear of the Lord, and because we know that this is His temple and we are members of it, we are going to do our very level-headed best to, to purify ourselves, with, to, to perfect holiness, as He said, in our lives. That also brings up the idea, as I said, we are citizens, uh, that we have been made citizens in Christ. But citizens of what? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, In verse 13, we see that we are made citizens of a kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Again, looking back, who is this He? Verse 12 says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, so that He is God. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, into the kingdom of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that it, we have been saved or we who have been saved have been saved into and conveyed by the Father into the kingdom of Christ. And the, the, uh, the writer of the book of Revelation, John, he understood these things as well when he wrote the book of Revelation. He says in chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. Now, that's an important thing for us to stop and to understand. That's a, that's a big descriptor that is given for, for the church there because for a kingdom to be a kingdom, it's not ruled over by a, a, a democracy. It's not ruled over by majority rule. The kingdom has got to be ruled by a king. And so if we are in the kingdom of Christ or if the church is described as the kingdom of Christ, then we are to be looking for something that has a king. And that stresses something in our lives. If, we're citizenship, if our citizenship is in the kingdom of Christ, that means our, our loyalty and our authority, just like when we are the body, comes from the head. And it comes from the king in the kingdom of Christ, which is Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, a passage I imagine uh, many people have memorized, Matthew 28 verses 18, Jesus said there as he, as he spoke some of the last words that, that we have recorded before he, he left the earth, He says, all authority has been given to me on earth and in heaven. All the authority is mine. Why? Because I am setting up my kingdom and I am the king of that kingdom. So all authority belongs to me. But notice what he goes on to teach them. He says in verse 19, go therefore, because all authority is mine, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, this idea of authority comes right around again. Teach them to deserve all things that I have commanded you. 
And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What was Jesus saying here? He was saying, authority has been given to me. I'm the king of this, of this kingdom. So all authority has been given to me. I want you to go, one, bring people to the kingdom. Go, therefore, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You bring them into the kingdom. And then, two, you teach them to respect my authority. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. It is the idea that he is stressing here in this passage that the church, the kingdom of Christ, is going to live and function under the authority of Christ. When the king says, this is what I want to do, this is the, the plan for us, then that's the, that's the plan for the kingdom. That's the direction that they move in. And then lastly, the, the last one that we'll look at this morning, the way the church is described, and by far my favorite, is the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of this, and, and it brings up a beautiful image, a beautiful image of, of Jesus' love for the church. He says in, chap, in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I, may, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He was saying to the, to the church there in Corinth, speaking to, again, this would imply to all the churches, he was saying that you are betrothed to Christ. Now that language, that language is built very heavily off of the Jewish idea of marriage. And so while we don't have time to go into all of that, and we've spoken on it before in the past, we will just maybe hit the highlights that the Jewish marriage took part in three phases. The first phase was when the, the, the man who, who had, had seen the, the, the girl that has is, that is caught his fancy, he, he says, this will make a good wife, and I, I would like to have her for my wife. And so he goes to her father and says, I would like to marry your daughter. And the father says, well, this is what it's going to cost you. He sets a price. He says, my daughter is worth this much to me. And so the, 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 excuse me, the, the suitor says, well, he has to decide. Well, well, am I willing to pay the bride price? Am I willing to pay the dowry? And, and once that is agreed upon, they, they maybe might discuss that a little bit. Then they would sign the, the contract, if you will. But it wasn't in, in pen and ink. It was with the offering of wine. This was what they, they would call this the ketubah. And they would take wine. The, the suitor would pour the wine for a cup and he would slide it across the table or he would hand it to, to his bride-to-be. And if she accepts him... See, at this point, this has been the father and the suitor talking about how much this woman is worth, how precious she, she is. And she's hearing this and now she has the opportunity to say, you know what? Either I'm going to accept you, I'm going to take that offering, and I'm going to drink of it, and we will, I will accept you as my, as my groom, or I'm going to reject it. I'm going to push it back across the table. I don't want it. So, so if, if she accepts it, if she drinks of the wine, at that point, they are betrothed. That means 100% legally married. Betrothed is not engaged as it is in our day. Betrothed means you have been joined together by God and you cannot be separated. Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And that's why he was going to very secretly put her away whenever he found out that she was with child. He was going to have to get a, a, a written form of divorce to put her away for unfaithfulness. And so we understand that, that now, as, as Paul says, that you are the betrothed of Christ, that they belong to Christ. 
But that also means in, Jewish, in the Jewish marriage context that they were not allowed to consummate the marriage. That didn't happen for, for sometimes an extended period of time because you know what the, the, the groom would do now. This is, my, this is my betrothed. This is my bride. But now I'm going to leave. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for us. I'm going to go back to my father's land and I'm going to start building our house. And he is going to be over, uh, observing that. And when he says, you know what, that house is suitable for your bride, I'm going to come back and get her. At the same time, the bride away from her groom is saying, I am taken now. And so she is covering herself with, with, uh, with, with usually you know, fine ointments if they could be afforded. And she is covering herself with white and wearing a veil. And when people see her, they say, this is someone who is spoken for. This is someone who belongs to somebody else. She is made to look pure and chaste. And then when the day when the father says, son, go and get your bride. He comes with his friends, his, his best of friends, and they come shouting and hollering and blowing a, a shofar, a trumpet. And as they come in, all of the town knows. It is no secret. Here comes the groom. And we think here comes the bride. Here comes the groom to take his bride, to sweep her off her feet, rush her back. And the feast that would follow was oftentimes days, sometimes weeks. That's the context that we find that we are the bride of Christ. God and and Christ came together and He said, here's the price for my beloved children that I have created. It is blood. It is your life. And Christ said, I'm willing to pay that. I'm willing to pay that price. And He went and He shed His blood and that is the offering that is given to us. Well, we accept the offering of blood by being baptized into Him. We are baptized into His death, Galatians tells us. And we are baptized into His death. We are baptized into the bloodiness of the cross. And if we're willing to do so, to become the bride of Christ, let us also remember then the relationship that we have. We are waiting for Him as He has promised. He said in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 14, that in my Father's house there are many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Where I am, you may be also. He's up there. He's, he's preparing up there. I say that as if heaven isn't up. But, but he is there in heaven with God, preparing a place for his bride, waiting for God to say, this place is ready for your bride. Go get him. At the same time, we, the bride of Christ, are to be preparing ourselves so that when people see, when they are looking for the church, they see the bride. That's someone who is spoken for. That's someone who is living in the purity, waiting for their groom, waiting for their husband. And then the day when he comes... Thessalonians, the book of Thessalonians tells us it will be with the shout of the archangel, the blow of the trumpet. It will be the same imagery that we see in the Jewish marriage context that he comes to gather up his bride, to take her home. And finally, the feast, the eternal relationship. And that is when we will have the true intimacy with Christ. When we will finally be gathered back together to live in the full presence of our Lord and Savior and the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. That's the way the church is described. And that's why I say it's the most, that's my favorite. That's my favorite that that we read about in the scripture that we are the bride of Christ. And it, it shows all of these, but especially the bride of Christ, show the great descriptions of the church and how precious it was to Christ. And so now just for a second, as we as we kind of close everything down, let's look back or let's remember back to what Paul said when he was speaking about it in the form of the temple. 
But also speaking about, when you think about it in the form of the bride or, or any one of these descriptions, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? He said, don't defile it. This is the temple of God. This is, you are the bride of Christ. Don't defile it. And that's the last thing that I want to look at tonight is the church, the way the church has been defiled um, and the way it can be defiled in today's, uh, in, our, in our lives today. One way, and we'll look at two different ways that we see this, but one way that the church is defiled by, is by denominationalism. Maybe that, that word denomination, it, it might bring to our minds the idea of banking. When you go to the bank and you say, I, I need a I need hundred bucks, they say, sometimes they'll say, well, how would you like that? You know, if you go far enough back, the word isn't used as often, but they would sometimes say, in what denominations would you like that? You want it in all ones? You want it in ones and fives? Ones and tens? Twenties? Fifties? Do you want it in a hundred? I'm not going to go any higher than that because I personally don't ever handle anything bigger than a hundred. But you see the point that, that we're talking about divisions of things. And that's exactly what we see in today's religious landscape. So much division. You have local churches that have been divided into various groups with various names and various doctrines that teach different things. Each one of these groups is subject to sometimes a, a legal or at least an organizational head of their own. When you look at things such as the, the Roman Catholic Church, they are, they are subject to the, the, the rules of the Pope, who is, is therefore subject to the authority of God, as they say. And so, but we see that, that we have division within the world today in a religious form. All sorts of different, different denominations and all sorts of different beliefs that are trying to live in harmony. But, with over 12,000 denominations in the world today, and of that 12,000 splinter groups, some have estimated as much as 75,000 different individual denominations within the Christian Realm. We're not talking about uh, Islam. We're not talking about Hinduism or Buddhism. Is that keeping with what Jesus prayed for over here in John chapter 17? In John chapter 17, when Jesus is, is getting ready to be crucified, He's getting ready to pay that bride price. And He's praying to God for His disciples, for those that are following Him. But look what He says in verse 20. He says, Now, I do not pray for these alone. I don't just pray for my disciples who are with me now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, one of the biggest things that I hear when, when I'm trying to help and, and talk with people, encourage people, you know, why, why don't you, would you like to start a Bible study? Would you like to get together and let's, let's look at, at what God's Word says. Maybe you would like to, to come to church with me. And they say, no, no, I'm, I'm good because I don't believe in God. I said, why, not? Why, don't, why not? Why don't you believe in God? And they say, because if God was real and all of you people seem to belong to Him, but you all disagree and fight over everything, then can, God, can that really be a God that I want to be a part of? And you know what? The only thing I can say to that is I'm sorry. Because I understand why, I, have, I completely understand why they think that. Because there's so much division. And Jesus said that they may believe that you sent me because they are united. And when we are not united, it should be no surprise to me. And it's just no surprise to us that people don't believe. But that's not just Jesus' plea. 
to God, but it's also Paul's rebuke of the, of the Corinthian church. In chapter 1, verse 10, he said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. There be no division among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of close, by those of closed household, that there are contentions among you. I say, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Jesus pleaded for unity in his prayer. Paul rebuked division amongst the Corinthians. And both of them called for that unity to be in the same thing. To be unified in God. Unified in, in serving under God as He is the authority. He is the head. He is the king. He is the, bri- uh, the groom. <coughs> Excuse me. Over and over again we see that we need to have no division. But to be unified. And that has led some to say, well, well, then that just means we need to accept, accept everybody and that's unity. But that's not what Paul said to Corinth. He didn't say it's okay to be of Paul or, or, or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. He said, no, there is one. And it is Christ that you are baptized, in, or that you are baptized into. It is Christ who was crucified for you. That is the one that you are unified under. You don't just unify to, to what men think, but to what God has called for. But because of this, because of denominationalism, excuse me, because of, uh, of that that has defiled the church, it has led to a second thing that defiles the church. One that is probably more active even within the, the, the true church than we might like to admit. And that is sectarianism. Sectarianism views a select group of churches as consisting of that church universal. So what sectarianism says is if the church has the name that I think it should have, that is the one true church. If the church goes around with any other name but this one, then they're wrong and they're not going to go to heaven. Or another way they might say that is if a church doesn't hold to my doctrines. You know, sometimes I've heard it say, you know, we, when we took the Lord's Supper, we had several cups in that thing. But some people say, no, if you have several cups, you're not a part of the true church. You've got to have one cup. If you have one cup, then you're a part of the true church. While others have said no, if you have one cup, you're not a part of the true church. You've got to have, you gotta have several. There are many different, different doctrines out there that, that people have grabbed onto and said, this right here makes up the true church. And again, again, that, that defiles what God has created. And that's expressed once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, let's flip over there and look at verses 1 through 4. He says, Brethren, could not, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you, still, you are still carnal. Where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Now, certainly Paul is not condemning standing for the truth. If one says, we believe that Christ died to, to save us from our sins, he, was, he, he died on the cross, was buried, and three days later, resurrected from the grave. And another says, we don't believe that at all. We don't believe anything like that. Well, standing for the truth is different than dividing over opinions and over thoughts. 
Whenever we are dividing ourselves because we say my way is the only way, then we have been guilty of sectarianism. And so maybe just a a simplified way to look at that is denominationalism is a view that is far too broad. Denominationalism says it doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you think, we're all a part of the church. The opposite of that, sectarianism says, unless you do exactly like I say, unless you do believe exactly what I believe, then you're not a part of the church. One is too broad, one is too, is too narrow. One includes too much, one excludes too much. But the church of Christ, I mean, the church that Christ loves, the church that Christ died to establish, the church that He said that He would build, it is far too precious for us to defile. We need to endeavor to always strive to keep unity of the Spirit, but to do so in the bond of peace. Peace with Christ, peace with our brethren. So, what is our view of the church? That would be the reflection that I, I encourage each and one of you to go as we, as we depart for a while for lunch. Reflect on that. Think upon that. What is my view of the church? The church that Jesus purchased with His blood. The church that He wants to be glorious. The church that He wants to be holy and without blemish. Am I guilty of defiling the church through means such as denominationalism, through, through an anything-goes sort of attitude, or also through means of sectarianism, through a my way is the only way attitude? We need to serve the Lord without defilement. We can do that by simply being Christians. Sometimes, sometimes you hear, might hear someone say that. How do we do that? How do we just simply put, how do we be a Christian? How do we, we start by just doing what the disciples did in that first century? When you look back through the book of Acts, you find that at a certain point, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that, the, that there in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They didn't have any man-made names. They didn't belong to any, any other description other than what God had given them. They didn't call themselves anything but what God had given them. They were the body of Christ. They were the house of God. They were the church of God. And yes, in Romans uh, 16, they were the church of Christ. They were the bride of Christ. So when someone says, what are you? Let's, let's be very careful how we answer that question. Instead of, instead of throwing another name into the mix of denominationalism, why don't we respond with, I'm just a Christian. What that means is I'm, I'm just a member of His body. I'm a member of His church. I meet with other Christians. We meet over on Lake Street. And we serve the Lord Jesus at a local church that is true to His prayer and His teachings. That means when we, when we became a part of the church that meets there, we examined what they did. We looked at the things they did and said, is, is this people that are following the authority of Christ? Is He the head? Does He make the rules? Or does somebody else make the rules? Do they do what they think is best? Or do they do what God has said is best? And then we join them. We become a part of them as Paul strove to become a part of them in, in Jerusalem. He said, he said, I know I'm a part of, the, of the, the body of Christ, but there is work going on here in Jerusalem and I need to be a part of that work. That doesn't mean that we all have to do what Paul did. It doesn't mean that every single one of us has to go into the, the, the places of, of, of spiritual talking like the synagogues and, and to preach God, but we do what we can 
We do whatever talent God has given us to the best of His ability because we know the church is worth that. It is precious enough for that. And we recognize there's not a single authority higher than the local church except that of Jesus who guides us through His teachings and through, his, and through the doctrine of His apostles. This morning, we have an opportunity. This morning, each and every one of us here has an opportunity to reflect on these things and to ask ourselves, am I a part of that church? Am I a part of the body of Christ? Am I a part of the kingdom of Christ? Am I a part of His bride? If this morning you have yet to turn from your past sins, if you still continue to walk without repenting for the things that you have done and without turning to God, if you have never confessed that you believe that Jesus is the living Son of God, or if you have never been baptized, I just say if you've never been completely immersed underwater, completely buried as Christ was buried into His death for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are not a part of that body. And you don't have the hope, the eternal blessings that come with those who are faithful to Christ, the inheritance in the future. But just because that is your case today doesn't mean it has to stay your case. We can all respond to the invitation of Christ. He slid that blood across the table. What are we going to do with it? Each and every one of us has an opportunity to take and to drink and to accept Him as our bride or as our groom to accept Him as our King. But for some of us here this morning, we've already done that. We've chosen to be faithful to Him and to Him alone, but we've not walked to be faithful to Him alone. And if that describes you this morning, remember what what James wrote in the book of James. He said that He is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins if we confess them. If there's something that you have done that that has put you at, at odds with God, that has separated you from Him and only Him, And here in a moment, as we stand to sing the song of invitation, I encourage you to pray for the forgiveness of those things that He will hear your prayer. If there's something that you've done uh, against a brother in some way, that you've sinned against them, go to them and confess those sins to them and be forgiven. But if there's something you've done in the public eye that has cast a reproach upon God's church that maybe has defiled it, people look and say, if that's what God's church is, I don't want to be a part of that, then let it be known to the church that we can all pray together. We can all be unified with one another. But whatever it is that we can do to help you, to serve God and to walk with Him, please let it be known right now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.